Amen. Thank you, worship team. Children, you are dismissed for Children's Church. Everyone else, go ahead and let's take our Bibles and open this morning to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 this morning, we're going to talk about favoritism as James doesn't really turn the page, although in my Bible he will turn the page this morning, but he doesn't really turn the page in context. He just gives us an example of how we can live out our faith. And so James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13, we're going to talk about favoritism and how favoritism contradicts our faith. In other words, Favoritism goes against what we profess to believe. Favoritism is contrary to what the Bible teaches. It's contrary to what we believe. And so it contradicts our faith. And in the text, we're going to see three ways in which favoritism contradicts our faith this morning. So let's begin reading James chapter 2. Pick up this morning in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 13. We'll pray and then we're going to walk through this text together this morning. So James chapter 2 verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality or favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppose you and the ones who drag you into court? Are are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who shows no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Will you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you again for the opportunity we have to learn from your word this morning and, Lord, to tackle the topic of favoritism or partiality. Lord, we are prone to showing favoritism. It is natural to us. It is a difficulty that we will always face. And even as James addresses it here, it is evident that even in the early church, favoritism was an issue. So, Lord, I pray this morning we would look at this topic honestly. We would look at what your word teaches us and how it contradicts what we believe it contradicts our faith and lord that we would do our best to overcome favoritism and to walk in obedience to your word so lord we pray for conviction where conviction is necessary we pray that you give us wisdom and discernment that we might understand what this text means and how to apply it into our daily lives we love you lord jesus and it is in your holy name that we pray amen 
Amen. Well, again, in the text, we're going to see three ways in which favoritism contradicts our faith. Number one, favoritism contradicts the truth of the gospel. Now, what I want you to do is we're, as we're making our way from chapter 1 into chapter 2, I want you to go back with me to chapter 1, verse 27, because I want you to show how this links back to what we just saw in verse 27. So at the end of chapter 1, James says in verse 27, "...religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this." To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, genuine faith will produce godliness, not worldliness. Let me say that again. Genuine faith will produce godliness, not worldliness. And so at the end of verse 27, when James says to keep yourself unstained from the world, what he means is don't let the world have an impact in your heart and in your life. Now, we talked about last week, that is almost an impossibility for us to do. Amen? There's not a person in here that doesn't struggle with that on a daily basis. We live in this world. This world is constantly having an impact in our lives and in our faith. And so we have to constantly battle against worldliness in our lives. And so as we make the transition from chapter 1 to chapter 2, James doesn't change subjects. Instead, James gives us the first example that comes to his mind that most likely the New Testament church was struggling with that has to to do with worldliness impacting the church and he deals with the issue of favoritism or showing partiality favoritism is judging someone or treating someone differently because of what it appears they look like on the outside favoritism is putting worldly standards in front of biblical truth and favoritism therefore contradicts our faith and we'll see three ways in the text in which it contradicts our faith now for james He uses the illustration of the rich versus the poor. But I want you to understand favoritism can be seen in many different ways. It can be seen in favoring one race above another, one nation above another, the rich above the poor as we see here, the attractive over the unattractive, the famous above the unknown, southerners above northerners or northerners above southerners, I can't say that, men above women or women above men, and on and on and on and on we could go. Favoritism is taking a worldly standard and applying it to people without having any clue what those people are on the inside. And so James says that we have to avoid favoritism because it contradicts our faith. We tend, however, to treat people better when we think we can get something out of them. And the reality is, I don't think things have changed that much in our day as it was during James's day. As a matter of fact, I have a feeling that if a man drove up, driving a really fancy car, got out in fancy clothes, made his way into the church, followed by a man that drove up in a raggedy, raggedy old car in tattered clothes, and they both made their way into the church, I have a feeling that they would have two totally different experiences even in our church. Now, we're a loving church. Matter of fact, some of you that are newer to the church, you would attest to that. Almost all the visitors and new members that we have, one of the first things they say positive about the church is, man, your church is loving. You guys love each other. You you embraced me when we walked in the door. I think we would do a good job, don't get me wrong. But we would have a hard time not showing favoritism 
towards the one that was rich, towards the one that was well off. And so we have to guard against showing favoritism. So James uses the illustration of a rich man that walks into the church. He's obviously rich based upon his appearance. And so the church bends over backwards. They fall over themselves in order to bless that man and try to give that man a good time. They sit him in the best place. They give him the best treatment. But he's followed by a poor man. And the poor man simply gets the leftovers. He's barely talked to. He's, He's barely worried about. He's told to stand out of the way, to sit down here at the feet. Get get out of the way. We're trying everything we can to impress the rich man. Why? Because again, we have a tendency to show favoritism towards those that we think we can get something out of. Right? We want the rich man to bless us with his richness. And so James explains that favoritism contradicts the church, or excuse me, contradicts our faith. And the first thing James points out is that favoritism contradicts the truth of the gospel. Now look with me now back in verse 1. James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then notice what he says, the Lord of glory. In other words, James says this, If you want to be impressed based upon appearances alone, look at the Lord of glory. Everything else and everyone else pales in comparison to the Lord of glory. So let the man ride up in his brand new Corvette. Let the man drive up and get out in his fancy suit. Let the man come into the church building that is obviously rich and blessed and well off. And he will still not compare to the Lord of glory. Amen? We've got to get our minds set in the right direction and we've got to stop being impressed by the things of this world that are going away and instead we've got to remember that we are all children of the Lord of glory. And so James says, even in who we worship, favoritism should prove itself to be pointless and worthless. Nothing compares to the Lord of glory. If you want to be impressed, look at Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And so James says, we serve the Lord of glory. Then he gives the illustration of favoritism in verses 2 and 3. But notice what he does as we make our way into verse 5. As James helps us to understand that the truth of the gospel is seen clearly in verse 5. He says, listen my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? James says, wait a minute. You're missing the truth of the gospel here. God didn't come to save the rich. God came to save the poor. And so I ask you, who are the poor? All of mankind. We have to remember that every one of us was created in the image of God to represent and display the glory of God. However, when sin came into our lives, all of us were marred by sin. Therefore, that image of God that is in us no longer displays the glory of God perfectly. We are now poor in spirit. We are sinners who have fallen desperately short of the glory of God in our lives. Amen? 
And so all of us need the grace of God. The great truth of this text is that all of mankind is equally poor in the spirit. All of mankind is equally desperate for the grace of God. And all of us are in need of salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it doesn't matter if you drive a fancy car or if you drive a ragged out old car. What matters is do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's exactly what James points out in verse 5. He says, Has not God come to save the poor and made them rich in faith? Because they trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're no longer poor. They might not have a dime to their name, but if we know Jesus, we're rich in the faith. And it really doesn't matter how much money we do or do not have in our checking account. Or whether we even have a checking account. Amen? Because this world is not what we're living for. We are living for the world that is to come. James also points something else out in verses 6 and 7. He doesn't say this universally. This isn't always the case, but notice what we find. He said, you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Are they not the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Here's what James is pointing out, pointing out the same truth that Jesus points out in Luke 18, 24 through 25. Jesus speaking to a rich man says, seeing that he had become sad, he said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now let's be careful. This text does not mean that rich people cannot be saved and enter into the kingdom of God. You know, you know how impossible it is? I told you, Bertie, he's a handful. You know how impossible it is for a, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Who could do that? God could. Amen. It's not impossible for the rich to be saved. Here's what James and Jesus are saying. The wealthy, the rich, they tend to put their trust in their wealth instead of in Jesus. The poor are not universally saved. The poor, however, have an advantage that they have nothing to trust in other than Jesus. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and, and pause for a minute because I, I know that we base richness and poverty based upon our own selves and what we're surrounded by. I, I think it's worth remembering that all of us in this room are rich compared to worldly standards. I'm not talking about spiritually wealthy. I'm, I'm talking about financially wealthy. Even if you're struggling to make ends meet, based upon world standards, all of us are rich. The vast majority of us slept in a house last night with water not dripping on our heads. Now, some of you may have had to put a bucket out. I get that. I understand that, right? But most of us had a decent meal last night. Most of us had a decent home to sleep in last night. And even if we didn't have a decent home, I promise you, you have a very nice home compared to worldly standards. Go, go visit or go do some search. Go look at third world countries. And you will find that if you have a home, you are wealthy. And so I don't want us to automatically assume that we're talking about somebody driving a, you know, an old beat up pickup truck versus a Bugatti. That's not what James is referring to here, right? He's referring to those who do not have to depend upon the Lord because they have enough wealth to make it on their own. And what Jesus says is it's impossible or almost impossible for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because the wealthy person has to set his wealth aside and trust in Jesus alone. And I want you to understand that if we are trusting in Jesus alone, whether we are rich or whether we are poor, 
We are rich in the faith. Notice it again in verse 5. Who are the children of God? Look at what it says in verse 5. It says, these are the ones who... Uh, Look at verse 5, sorry. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? That's how we become a child of God, is by loving him. By loving him so much that we put our faith and our trust in what Christ accomplished on the cross. It's not about being poor. It's not even about being rich. It's about loving the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we have to understand is that when we show favoritism, we contradict the truth of the gospel. The gospel turns everything on its head. We think it's good to be rich and bad to be poor, and the gospel says, no, you're all poor, and if you want to be rich, you've got to give everything up and trust in Jesus. Favoritism says we can make it without God. And the gospel says that we are in desperate need of God. Amen? And so we want to understand that when we show favoritism, we contradict the truth of the gospel. And listen to this. We actually push both the poor and the rich further away from Christ. I want you to think about that for a moment. The poor man walks in and is treated as if he is nothing he will be pushed away from the truth of the gospel. He will say, I want no part of that group of people. Conversely, if the rich man walks in and we treat him as if he has already arrived, as if his richness is enough, then he will leave here thinking, I have no need for Jesus because that group of people treated me as if I already had all that I need in my wealth. And in both instances, we have pushed both the rich and the poor further and further away from the truth of the gospel. So how do we treat people? We treat people as equally loved by God and equally desperate for the need of God's grace in their lives. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what football team you root for. All that matters is you and I equally need Jesus. So there's no room for favoritism. Favoritism contradicts the truth of the gospel. And then secondly, favoritism contradicts the law of God. Look at what it says in verse 8. I am going to turn the page now because in my Bible, verse 8 is on the next page. James says this. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Verse 8, James begins to kind of change his argument towards the gospel to the royal law. Now the royal law speaks to Leviticus 19 where God tells us that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. As a matter of fact, most of us are very familiar with this rule. As a matter of fact, we think of this as the royal law or as the golden rule that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we should love our neighbors as ourselves. Matter of fact, Jesus, remember, tells us that on those two laws hangs all the laws and all the prophets. In other words, if you want a cheat sheet for how to bring glory to God in your life, if you will do those two things, love God and love your neighbor, you will have it well under control amen you realize that's what that is right 
Like, you remember when you were in school and, and you got to the point in high school where you had to start reading Shakespeare and some of that complicated stuff, and you went to the library, you went to the bookstore, you got on Amazon, and you looked for that yellow and black book that said Shakespeare for Dummies? Right? That, that's kind of what those two commandments are. It's like scripture for the unintelligent, right? I'm not going to say dummies, but we'll go say unintelligent. If you want a cheat sheet, if you want cliff notes, here they are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says those two commands summarize all the laws and all the prophets put together. But listen to the context of the royal law, the golden rule, from Leviticus 19, verses 15 through 18. Here's what God says to the nation of Israel. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. In other words, you're not allowed to show favoritism. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not reason frankly, excuse me, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Notice that context begins with you are not allowed to show favoritism. Which is why James brings it out here and says that if you are showing favoritism, you are breaking the royal law. In other words, we cannot judge one another based upon outward appearances or based upon what we think we might get from someone. Instead, we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, I think one of the greatest sermons I've ever heard preached on the golden rule was by one of my professors at Southeastern, Dr. Jim Shaddix. And as he preached on the golden rule, he reminded us that the golden rule is a command that is meant to be proactively obeyed, not a command that is to be used to defend against bad behavior. Let me give you an example. Parents, please pay close attention. Because oftentimes, here's how we try to apply the golden rule. We go up to Johnny and we say, Johnny, don't hit Bobby because you wouldn't want Bobby to hit you back. Now, is that not how we oftentimes try to deploy the golden rule, right? We're trying to alter someone's behavior by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. That is not what the command says. The command is a proactive command that says, love Johnny, as you would want to be loved, has nothing to do with altering the behavior coming back to you. Instead, Jesus says, if you want to obey God, love your neighbor as you would want to be loved. He's not worried about what your neighbor is going to do back. He says, love your neighbor. And in one of the greatest points of application from that message is that the greatest way in which we can love our neighbor is share the gospel with our neighbor. Amen. And so here's what James says as he tries to deploy the royal law on us. He says, when you show favoritism, you are not loving your neighbor as yourself. He says, instead, you're dishonoring the poor man and you're only selfishly loving the rich man. You're not loving the rich man because you know the rich man. You're loving the rich man because you think you can get something back from the rich man. That's selfishness. That's not love. And you're dishonoring the poor man, 
making an assumption about who he is and what he is when you have no clue who he is on the inside. And James says, you are not obeying the royal law. And you say, well, listen, favoritism comes natural. It's hard. I get it. What's the big deal? We've all made the mistake. We've all struggled in this area. What's the big deal? And I would agree. We've all struggled in that area, myself included. But what's the big deal? Well, notice what James says, continuing in verse 9. He says, if you show partiality, you're committing sin. And you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also says do not murder. And if you don't commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the whole law. So what's the big deal? The big deal is it doesn't take but one before we have transgressed the entire law. And so the big deal is that partiality is sin. Thus, even though showing favoritism comes naturally to us and it may not seem like a big deal, we need to understand that it is a big deal that causes us to sin against God. And if our sin goes unchecked and we refuse to deal with it by trusting in Jesus Christ, then our sin ultimately separates us from the grace of God eternally. And that brings us to our last point this morning. Favoritism contradicts the truth of the gospel. Favoritism contradicts the law of God. And then thirdly, favoritism contradicts the reality of judgment. You say, what's the big deal about having sin? The big deal about having sin is that judgment is coming. Look at what James says in verse 12. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty couple of things I want you to notice there in verse 12. James, first of all, refers to the law by which we will be judged under as the law of liberty. This means that we are judged as those who have been set free from sin and the law so that we can walk in newness of life with Christ. Here's what that means. You are not judged based upon the Old Testament law, the list of do's and don'ts by which we have no chance to obey. Instead, you are judged based upon those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who have accepted the law of liberty. You've now been set free so that you can obey God. And here's what it means so far in the book of James. We are free to rejoice in trials knowing that God is bringing good to his children. We're free to obey God by putting action to our faith. We're free to speak with love and build each other up. We're free to take care of the needy and demonstrate the love of God. We're free to be in the world, but not of the world. We're free to view men as equally created in the image of God and equally in need of God's grace. That's a summary of James chapter 1 and where we're at in chapter 2. James says you've been set free so that you can do those things that God commands in his word. He says, you will be judged as those who live under the law of liberty because you have been set free from the grips of sin. But notice what else James says in chapter, uh, in verse 12. He says, so speak and so act. He says, you're going to be judged in two ways, all of us. You're going to be judged in what you say and in what you do, both what you did that wasn't right and what you didn't do that you should have done. Amen? Now, we don't say amen to that with excitement because that's not exciting. 
That's terrifying. You may be sitting here thinking this morning, what chance do I have standing before God in judgment? If you only knew some of the things I had done, if you only knew some of the things that I have said, what chance do I have? The truth is none of us stand a chance in judgment. Righteousness is the requirement and none of us are righteous. And that is why the good news of the gospel is good news. Because Jesus came and lived the life that we could not live. Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf and then he went to the cross to die the death that we deserved. And then he rose from the dead having defeated death and the grave so that you and I could put our faith and trust in him so that we could have his grace instead of his judgment. So that as we are judged under the law of liberty, we are judged as those who have already been poured over with the righteousness of Christ. That's what James says is called mercy. It's when we deserve judgment, but instead we got grace. Instead, God demonstrated his mercy toward us. In that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But notice what he says at the end of verse 13. It's important. He says, although we've experienced mercy, he says judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. In other words, here's what he means. For the person who does not show mercy, but yet continues to show partiality based upon outward appearances and selfish motivations, he says they have not experienced the mercy of God and therefore they will be judged for their sin in both word and deed. He says, if you're not showing mercy, it's because you haven't experienced the mercy of God. And if you haven't experienced the mercy of God, if you have not trusted Jesus Christ, judgment is without mercy. You will be judged for your sins alone. And you will be found wanting. You will not meet the righteous requirement of the law. However, for the person that shows mercy... It demonstrates that they have also experienced the mercy of God. And because they've experienced the mercy of God, they are judged under the law of liberty. They are judged as those who have trusted Jesus Christ because they have demonstrated their love for God and their love for others. Don't don't miss that. What does it say in verse 5? It says those who love God. What does it say in verse 8? Love your neighbor. I told you it was a cheat sheet. Love God. Love your neighbor. And what does it mean? It means, notice the last phrase of verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you've trusted God, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then you are demonstrating your faith by loving God and loving neighbor. You're showing mercy because you've experienced mercy. And if that's the case in your life, then mercy overcomes judgment. You will not be judged based upon what you have done alone. You will be judged based upon what you have done, but what you have done will be viewed through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. They've been removed as far as the east is from the west and you have been bestowed with the righteousness of Christ. Woohoo! Amen? That's what God has done for us. 
That's what the gospel message of Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. So let me ask you then this morning. Have you experienced the mercy of God in your life? You see, the good news is only good news for those who've trusted it. For those who have rejected the truth of the gospel, it's not good news. It's actually the news that will condemn you to eternity in hell. That's why Jesus is called the chief cornerstone. For those who put their faith in him, he's the foundational stone by which our eternity is secured. But for those who reject him, he is that stone that you stump your toe over and fall over. Because he is the only means of salvation. He's the only means of eternal life. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I want you to understand today can be the day that you do. You say, well, how, how do I go about that? Well, first of all, if you don't know Jesus Christ and you're here this morning, I believe that God is calling you unto salvation. There's this, there's this still, small, yet discernible voice inside saying, He's talking about you. And you can feel God calling you to salvation. And if that's you this morning, if you feel God calling you to His side, then I want to encourage you, don't say no, say yes to Him. And then if you say yes to him, what you're saying yes to is yes, that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, you believe he died on the cross to pay for your sins. Yes, you believe he rose from the dead. And yes, listen carefully, you're willing to lay down your life and serve him instead. That's why the rich man back in what Jesus was talking about back in Luke chapter 18, he was so upset is because in Luke 18, He said, I'm not willing to give up my wealth. I'm not willing to lay my life down and follow Jesus. And that's why Jesus said it was so difficult for that man to get into the kingdom of God because he wasn't willing to give up life in order to live for Christ. And that's what it takes to follow Jesus. It takes giving up whatever it is, your life, whether it's wealth, whether it's your, your desires, it's all of that wrapped into one. It's laying down your life so that you instead will live for Christ. And if you're here this morning and you believe that and you're willing to make that commitment and you feel God calling you unto salvation and in just a few moments, we're going to stand to sing our hymn of invitation. And that's your opportunity to say yes to God. Believers, if we're being honest, favoritism is something we still struggle with. Amen? It just is. Whether we're in the church, whether we're at work, whether at Walmart, no matter where we are at, if we see someone that on the outside looks as if they have something to offer, some way in which they can benefit us, we will struggle. So let's remind ourselves, let's remember that favoritism contradicts the truth of the gospel, that it contradicts the law of God, and that it contradicts the reality of judgment. Let's overcome favoritism by living out what we claim to believe. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for the truth that your word contains. And Lord, we acknowledge this morning that we are prone to showing favoritism. Lord, that that is our default. Lord, forgive us. Lord, convict us. Show us where we're currently showing favoritism in our lives. 
And help us to repent of it this morning. Help us to confess it as sin. Help us to turn from it. And as we go throughout the rest of this week, convict us when we show favoritism. And help us to realize that it contradicts the gospel. That it it, it contradicts your law and it contradicts the reality of the judgment that is to come. Lord, forgive us and lead us away from it. Lord, I also pray if there's anyone here today that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they put their faith and trust in you. Lord, call them under yourself. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. And we surrender ourselves in this invitation to you now. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.